One. Hello, everybody. Welcome back once again to another Lights, Camera, Sports podcast presented by Chestnut Hill Technologies. I'm your host, Mike Galtieri. All right, we're right in the heart of March Madness. I thought it'd be great to have on Adam Fickelstein. He covers college recruiting for ESPN Scout, also NewEnglandRecruitingReport.com. He's all over the place. He knows all the coaches across the country. Uh, it was a very fun podcast. We talked about how he got involved in the industry. Also, his thoughts on recruiting in general. Um, his favorite coaches to deal with. Uh, his thoughts on Boston College basketball in the future. Also on Jim Christian and the staff. Also went into a little bit about UConn basketball as well. So we covered a lot, a lot of topics. It was a really good podcast. Close to 45 minutes. So uh, please stick with us. Also, like to remind everybody, if you're a BC football fan, you need to be part of the BC Football Gridiron Club. Just go to bcfootballgridiron.com for more details and to sign up. All right, first we'll hear from Chestnut Hill Technologies and Stone Loving Pizza. Also like to remind them, if you want to join these companies, you can just email lightscamerasportsads at gmail.com and get on board. Lightscamerasportsads at gmail.com. All right, as always, thank you so much for listening. Chestnut Hill Technologies is a leading technology integration and cybersecurity consulting firm based in the Boston area and owned by a BC alum. CHT provides world-class strategy and consulting to Fortune 500 and mid-cap firms throughout New England and nationally, including State Street Bank, Amaj Pharma, and Intel Corporation. Check them out at chestnuthilltechnologies.com. That's chestnuthilltechnologies.com. At Stone Love and Pizza, their mission is simple, to offer the most creative selection of hand-tossed, all-natural pizza in the Neapolitan tradition. Their pizzas are cooked in a stone-fired brick oven directly on the stone to lock in the flavor. Stone Love and Pizza uses all-natural products. In other words, their dough, sauce, and cheese contain no additives, preservatives, or weird chemicals of any kind. Come visit one of Stone Lovin's three locations, including the newest location at 1649 Beacon Street in Newton. Go Eagles! Hello, everybody. Welcome back once again to another Lights, Camera, Sports podcast presented by Chestnut Hill Technologies. Well, right in the heart of March Madness, I thought it would be a great time to invite our next guest. He is Adam Fickelstein, uh, the scouting recruiting analyst for ESPN.com. Also, you might know him from the New England Recruiting Report. I've actually done some broadcasting work with them over the years, too, at CPTV Sports and other outlets. So, Adam, first of all, thank you very much for the time and joining us here on the Lights, Camera, Sports podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Adam, I like to always profile our guests and kind of learn the background before. Uh, first of all, I'd like to know, did you always was basketball always your first sport growing up, playing, and did you play in other sports, and was that always your primary interest? You know, I was uh, I was better at tennis. Uh, tennis was the, the sport I was best at. Basketball was basketball was always kind of my first love, but it wasn't necessarily the uh, the sport I was I was best at. Um, you know, so I, I was um, I was even though I was better at tennis, basketball always just seemed to uh, for some reason it, it just seemed to, to click for me. You know, with Mentally, that is, you know, tennis. I could be playing, and the forehand could be flying, and I really wasn't sure why, you know. But with basketball, it, it just, even though I wasn't quite as good at it, and maybe that's because more, more kids, more kids played, so it, it wasn't, you know, so it was just a, a little bit of supply and demand. But, um, you know, it, it was always just something that seemed to make sense to me when I missed the shot. Even as a young kid, I could always try and figure out why. Um, so I, I think I saw the game a little bit better, uh, but I was I was better at tennis for sure. And you grew up in Portland Heights, uh, Portland Connecticut. I, I assume did you go to Portland High School or like a Xavier or what school? No, I went to I went to Portland. Portland. I, um, you know, we uh, growing up, I'd say about a, a fraction of my friends ended up going to Xavier. Um, I, I visited Xavier, and ironically, I also ended up visiting as an eighth grader, Choke, which is where I later coached. Um, but for me, being able to stay home in the, in the local public school was great. I'm, uh, I, had a, I, I had a really, especially in high school, had a really good experience in the public schools. And, you know, it's a small town where there were only 56 kids in my graduating class. So wow. we got, um, 
you know, you just really got to know everybody and, and especially got a chance to know all the teachers. And so for me, that that public education was uh, was really valuable. And you have an interesting story in doing research on your your story. You know, you seem like you're more involved with politics growing up. Student body president in high school, uh, working for Governor Rowland's student council in the state of Connecticut. So it seemed like you had a big interest in politics. Was that even more so than basketball and sports at the high school level? Yeah, you you did your homework. That's uh, <laughs> that's that's impressive. Um, yeah, I I was yeah that, that that's definitely the case. I mean, I was um, I was more politically inclined even through college. To be honest, I mean, I I was uh, um, in I was student body president for a couple of years, and then the, the thing you mentioned with with Governor Rowland was I was uh, got elected president of the. Um, Connecticut Association of Student Councils when I was uh, at the end of my junior year for my senior year and that was and that was uh, kind of put me on on Governor Rowland's I forget what it was called but yeah I, I was very very politically involved not so much so anymore but um, it was at the time it was great because it was it was a great way to meet kids from um, from different areas of different towns and, and uh, kind of branch out and it was all those student leadership experiences for me in high school were, were for me the most probably the most valuable part and I, I think that again that ties back to being in a small school and having the opportunity to do stuff like that that maybe you wouldn't if you were in a big school so that 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 all tied together but yeah I was I was very I was the student government student leadership and and um and, and everything along those lines. And you met your wife doing that as well. So what could be better, right? <laughs> I mean, good God, where, where are you, you? You following me? How do you? Uh... <laughs> oh, yeah. So truth be told, my wife and I were both involved in student government in uh, in college. Uh, my wife was also also the waitress at the bar. So I'm not sure which one had more uh, <laughs> to do with it. But they were they were both connected. But yeah, that's that is, uh, and she is. She is not politically oriented at all, so it's it's really kind of ironic that that, that was one of the first places that we met because, um, yeah, she just she just is very disinterested in in kind of uh, you know the the, uh, the bureaucracy of, of politics sometimes. And now let's you know let's transfer you uh, at UConn uh, for a couple of years, and you were the student uh, manager as well uh, for Jim Calhoun. What era was that? What years were that? Not to date you. But what what uh, what players would? Who... Yeah, so I, I started at Connecticut College uh, in New London, and I was only there for a semester. Um, and so I transferred into UConn second semester of my freshman year, and that was the year after they had just won a national championship. So they won it in '99, and so um, that was you know. So I arrived there January of 2000, and I graduated you know three and a half years later. And, um, and then I, naturally they won the national championship, uh, the year after I left too. So, so my three and a half years there were directly in between, uh, two national championships. Still though, I'm in pretty impressive years in between there and made some deep runs. If I recall, uh, in that, was, that era. Yeah, it was a really cool time because, um, you know, UConn basketball was, was obviously at its peak. Uh, there was a ton. Just from a, just to be a student on campus there and, and, you know, have to, we never actually did it, but like, you know, people were sleeping on sidewalks to, to get season tickets and, and you're, you know, you're, you're doing everything you can to get And then, you know, the fun was probably, you know, at the time it was a thing to do on campus. Um, and then to be a manager, which, which was, um, you know, a great learning experience. And that's something, Tom Moore, who is uh, an assistant at Rhode Island now, had been the head coach at, at Quinnipiac um, for, I, I want to say, 10 years prior to that. You know, I tell this story all the time because it, it says a lot about who he is. I, I, I sent him an email, a random email, saying that, you know, I wanted to try out for the team. And then when I couldn't make it, he uh, because everybody wanted to try out for the team. So he had me, he returned the email, had me in his office an hour later, told me to be a manager and that it would be the best way to kind of lead to a coaching career. And uh, he was 100% right. But I think just the fact that he took the time to return that email and have me in his office 
when you were, I mean, this, again, UConn at the time was as big of a national program as there was. So for him to take the time to do that, I think just, you know, I like to tell the story because it says a lot about, about who he is. Um, and so, uh, you know, a lot of things ended up happening for me that were based off him returning an email and, and having me in his office and telling me to be a manager. And give us a behind-the-scenes look, your perspective from that angle of uh, Jim Calhoun. What was he like day-to-day, you know, when the cameras weren't shining bright uh, during a game? Uh, he was, you know, it was one of those things. Even though I was a manager, there were about 40 managers at the time. Wow. So, you, wow. Know, you had to have, I mean, it was just, UConn basketball was just so big. There were so many people who wanted to be associated with the program. So I only went to practice maybe two or three days a week. And because they'd have a rotating scale of, of the managers who, who were there. Um, you know, and, and I, maybe it was four or five that went on the road when they had games. And, and so it wasn't, you know, what, I wasn't particularly close to Coach Calhoun. I mean, I made him a cup of coffee once, but it's, it's something <laughs> that, that um, you know, in recent years as I've, as I've gotten to know him a little bit, uh, I've, I've reminded him of. But there was really no reason – you know, there were 40 of us, you know, so there was, there was no reason for him to, uh, for him to get to know me, but for me to be able to observe him, you know, a hall of fame coach. And, um, you know, the, the things that resonated with him at that, that even at that early age where I really didn't even know what I was watching, but his intensity, especially on game day was unlike anything I, I'd ever seen. And, um, so, you know, not playing hard just wasn't an option for, for his guys. And then the second piece was his ability to uh, connect with his best player and coach confidence. I mean, I, I, you know, back in the day, I used to hear him kind of talk about when they had, when he did coaching clinics or things like that, he would freely admit that his X's and O's were no better than the next guys. But to me, he was as good of a, you know, a, a psychologist as there was from a coaching standpoint. I mean, just really understood how to connect with his top guys and then not just motivate them, but get them to believe that they could be better than they ever thought they were. Um, and, you know, I, the years I were there, I was there, pardon me, I, I saw that um, with Karan Butler, uh, Ben Gordon, Emeka Okafor. I mean, all of those guys ended up being much better than anyone ever thought they would. And, and, you know, it was Karan. Karan was only there for two years, but, but watching that in particular, um, I just remember thinking he was, you know, as good as any player in the country. And, and Coach Calhoun just had him believing. And when he and his, once he believed in himself to that degree, he just became, it just totally infused him. And, and I think, when you look at the history of UConn basketball, you see you see that with a number of different guys. No question about it. I'll never forget that Elite Eight game up in Syracuse against Maryland, Juan Dixon and company. The game that Butler yeah, had, brutal. I mean, but, but it was brutal. But the, the the game that he played was unbelievable. Karan Butler. Yeah, yeah. No, and it was Juan Dixon and Lonnie Baxter, as I yeah. believe and uh, recall. And right, was it Steve Blake on that team? Yeah, Steve Blake. I mean, that was Garrett. That was national championship team. Yeah. Yeah, and it was a good game. Yeah. So, uh, Adam, while we have you here, now you make a big transition. After school, you start. You go to Western Connecticut State, and then the University of Hartford, one of the youngest assistants in D one basketball, age twenty four, University of Hartford. Just to, to tell us that time how you transition from college to coaching. Well, it's uh, it was it was really just you know sheer desire. I mean, when I graduated from UConn, um, I. I, I had an interview at Eastern Connecticut State University for an assistant coaching position, and it was a, it was a job that I was admittedly unqualified for. So I can totally, uh, you know, understand why. I, but I didn't get the job, and rightfully so, because I had no resume. I'd really only been a manager at, at UConn. And, um, but what happened was when I didn't get it, it really kind of um, – you know, it, it, it really motivated me. And uh, so I ended up reaching out to basically every basketball program within about a 90-minute driving radius of where I was. And I, I basically said, you don't have to pay me. 
uh, I just want to be a part of the program. Uh, I want to, I want to coach. This is what I want to do. And Bob Campbell at Western Connecticut was the first and one of the only people to get back to me. And so again, you know, I, I tell the story about Tom Moore returning my email. Well, Bob Campbell returned another email. So those are two things right away, two big strokes of luck, even though, you know, I, I didn't make a dollar off either one up until, up until my second year at WestCon. And then I, I think I was paid a thousand dollars or something like that to be an assistant coach for the year. Um, but they, you know, Coach Campbell, like Coach Moore, just gave me a chance. And it was a chance to go learn. And I was really just um, totally in, engulfed in the process of learning as much as I could. I mean, at this, time, at this point, I was, I was 22, 23. And uh, when I wasn't coaching or recruiting, I was reading a coaching book or watching a coaching video. And a lot like tons of young coaches. I think ultimately what allowed me to make the jump to Hartford was, was two things. Whenever we had an off day at Western Connecticut, I would go watch a Division One team practice. So I spent time at Hartford. I spent time at Yale. I spent time at Quinnipiac because uh, they, were, they were the local places. So that when they had an opening, my face was a, a little bit uh, familiar. And then I had kind of, in the Division Three ranks, there was a, a player named uh, Charles Easterling in Hartford, who won multiple state championships. Yeah. And initially initially gone to a junior college, um, but had come back home and wasn't in school. And I... Um, he's the I beast, went, right? He's known as the beast. He's the nickname in the, pro, the summer leagues. Go, yep. And I just went <laughs> to go find him. And, you know, there, there aren't too many, you know, uh, young assistant coaches wandering around Albany Avenue looking for Charles Easterling. But, um, you know, we... I, found him and he was uh you know he was receptive to it and able to get him in school and and uh get him into west con and and so i think that that story resonated with with local coaches because they you know they knew of charles and so again for this young guy to be out in albany avenue which is you know typically known as a not so nice neighborhood in hartford um you know, finding and getting the player, I think, you know, I know for, for Larry Harrison, who was the guy who hired me, that he, that he recognized and differentiated me, I think, from, from other people. But that's just, you know, that's who I was at the time. I was 100%. I was all in on coaching and coaching in college and going to do absolutely everything from a learning standpoint, from a recruiting standpoint. Uh, to make sure I, I got there. So when Larry hired me at Hartford, I was I was 24. And then let's well, let's talk. And unfortunately, you saw the experience of coaching. The, the whole staff was basically fired. What that first year after you got there, correct? Yeah, it was seven months. You know, we won Coach of the Year. That's the ironic thing. So we had. Um, I went to that situation knowing that that it was that it was a, a year in which you know we had to win. You know, it was um, he had. Two years left on his deal, so after the season, he'd only have one. And very few people kind of coached throughout their contract. This is like 12 years ago now, so it was kind of at the end of the year. We knew we were either going to be out or get extended. But if you know, there were two of me on every Division Three bench in the country. Chestnut Hill Technologies is a leading technology integration and cybersecurity consulting firm, based in the Boston area and owned by a BC alum. CHT provides world-class strategy and consulting to Fortune 500 and mid-cap firms throughout New England and nationally, including State Street Bank, Amaj Pharma, and Intel Corporation. Check them out at chestnuthilltechnologies.com. That's chestnuthilltechnologies.com. At Stone Love and Pizza, their mission is simple, to offer the most creative selection of hand-tossed, all-natural pizza in the Neapolitan tradition. Their pizzas are cooked in a stone-fired brick oven directly on the stone to lock in the flavor. Stone Love and Pizza uses all-natural products. In other words, their dough, sauce, and cheese contain no additives, preservatives, or weird chemicals of any kind. Come visit one of Stone Lovin's three locations, including the newest location at 1649 Beacon Street in Newton. Go Eagles! And truth be told, actually, be like a, a grad assistant for basketball operations, and then we had somebody on the staff leave, and I had been, been you know, getting to know the guys and working the guys out, so he just bumped me up. So, um, you know, you can see the pattern of, of just good fortune. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, you know, we, we 
played the season and we finished third in the conference. He won coach of the year in the conference. And, uh, you know, we thought we were, we thought we were in good shape. And then two weeks after the season ended, um, and I'll always remember this day, but yeah, we ended up, ended up getting fired and it's, um, you know, for me, it ended up being a, a blessing. It was, it was devastating at the time, but it was, uh, you know, it ended up being a, a blessing in disguise because, it kind of led me along a different path and, and, and got me involved in some of the things that I still do today. Yeah, Adam, great. That's a great segue. Let's talk about that. The the broadcast work you do for Color now at the University of Hartford, also uh, ESPN and the New England Recruiting Report. Just talk about how you transitioned to that side of the game. Well, when I left Hartford, I didn't really know what I was gonna what I was gonna do. I was, um, you know, what I found out is that college coaching wasn't exactly what I envisioned. Um, not from, a, you know, especially from, a, I mean, at this point I was full-time and I had benefits and stuff like that, but the, the amount of money I was making um, would never be enough to have a family. Um, and my wife and I were, at the time we were, we were just dating and we were waiting to, basically we were waiting to get engaged until I could afford a ring. Um, and that wasn't really happening there. Uh, so it was, you know, and then when we got out, the two chances I had to stay involved, one was in one was in Buffalo and one was in Baltimore. And her family's from Connecticut. My family was from Connecticut. Family was really important to both of us. I didn't I didn't want to I didn't want to move to Buffalo, um, and didn't really want to go to Baltimore either. So it was, um, you know, so I was just trying to explore other things. And there was there was the the media piece um, that that I explore i was simultaneously i was also exploring scouting in the nba i did did that under marty blake for for two or three years and i also ended up taking the the high school job at, at choke which is a, a you know a very prestigious academic prep school and, and i so i i started all three of those things not really knowing which one was was gonna have the most traction and where my future was gonna be um and i ended up uh, you know, I ended up doing the NBA stuff for a couple of years until the media stuff really took off. And, um, and then it was just, and then I left the NBA, left the NBA scouting world to, to do the media work. And then it got to the point, uh, especially as, as we settled down and started to have a family that I had to leave the high school coaching, even though I, I loved that, uh, to do the media work too. And so now it's, you know, you cover recruiting for ESPN, and, and I'm fortunate to get to do some TV stuff, whether it's high school stuff on ESPNU or, or college games on ESPN3 or ESPNU. So it's, it's, uh, it's been a lot of fun. When I think about recruiting and your job, my que- number one question that comes to my mind is, how are you able to keep track of all these high school players, these, these AAU showcases, you know, a kid from Washington State, the kid to Florida, how are you able to, in your mind, I guess, just keep all that information straight? I just, from a person who's outside that world, that's what I often wonder. You guys, Jeff Goodman, Andy Katz, how are you guys able to do that? Well, it's, um, you know, I don't know that we do it perfectly. Um, I think we do the best job we can. And, you know, my home base has always been the Northeast. So for me, you know, even today, because uh, when I first started at ESPN, we had like five or six guys on our team, and we basically all had our region that we were responsible for. And then it was either Paul Biancardi or Dave Tellup uh, a few years back. You know, those guys were those guys were like the head of our group, so they were they were the national, uh, you know, the top of the top of the chain in terms of the national guys. Um, and as the group has gotten a little smaller, you know, I, I still try and stay true to, to my Northeast roots, and I, I want to know all those guys, and, and I have a big database at home that I, that I you know, am on every day, and whether it's a scholarship offer or uh, a, a note that I make, you know, an evaluation note that I make when I watch somebody play, I log everything into that. Um, and then now I have to do uh, some of the national stuff too, but I, I, I don't think it would be possible for me to know the whole country like I know the Northeast. So when I go beyond the Northeast, it's really focused on guys who have a chance to, to uh, contend in our, in our ESPN national rankings. So basically that's just the, you know, the most elite guys nationally. And is, I've heard from other people, is July your busiest time of year in terms of seeing kids and the AU scene? Is that type, 
how the cycle works. Just describe the yearly cycle to us and how you recruit yeah, one. It, in, in the, so July is the, the NCA recruiting period where for the last three full weeks of July, college coaches can go to events from Wednesday to Sunday. So that basically means that, you know, kids are going to be playing and most of the kids are going to be playing every day but Monday and Tuesday for three weeks. So basically it means that, you know, if you're lucky, you can fly out on Wednesday morning, get to where you need to be. Uh, you know, they, they usually start Wednesday at 4 or 5 o'clock um, and then they'll play through the day on, uh, on Sunday, again, ending at around 4 or 5 o'clock. I can't remember exactly which one it is and if you're lucky you can catch a flight out and get home Sunday night but um you know so that's so so for college coaches and for people in my line of work those those three months in in July are very busy the difference you know for me is that I still have to be out in June uh because even though college coaches can't be out the kids are still playing um there's a lot of national camps in June there's um USA basketball is always has has it depending on what age groups are playing in FIBA competitions that year they'll have trials and training camps out in Colorado so that that's a trip I usually take in June uh the NBA Players Association has their top 100 camp so uh June is June is pretty busy a busy month of travel July is very busy and then August things calm down a little bit um and then you know the fall uh, there's not as much national stuff, but for me, that's where I tap back into my Northeast and specifically my New England roots. And you start traveling to the various prep schools to see the new kids that are that have come in and, and uh, come into the boarding schools, so you can make sure you you have a handle on them. In terms of seeing the coaches in the summer, and this might put you on the spot a little bit. Tell me if you if it is too much. But who, what coach has the most? Uh, engaging personality with recruiting or is most friendly to you that you've noticed over the years? Is there a coach that sticks out in your mind? If, if, if there, maybe there isn't, you know, I, I think that there's, um, I, I've been fortunate to have good relationships with, with a lot of, a lot of guys. And I think that's typical for people in the industry. I've always tried to, um, you know, I've always tried to, follow the example set by coaches who turned to media uh, at ESPN. And I think a lot of those guys, you know, try to differentiate between being, yes, you work in the media, but you're not a reporter. And so I think you can always kind of empathize with what the college coach is going through. Um, and hopefully you're in a situation where you can, you can help. Um, but, but fortunately for me, um, you know, I've been able to have, pretty good relationships with a lot of different coaches and naturally the local ones are, are people that you're going to see more frequently and so you know a lot of the, the coaches in New England and in the Northeast I've gotten to know pretty well and and you know but the other reality is that most of my friends are coaches you know or, or work in or work in the media and that I think is is, is the way it is for most coaches just because your lifestyle is so different that these people, whether you're whether you're in the media and they're a coach, or you're both coaches, or whatever the case may be, I mean, these are people that now, for the last almost 15 years, have been working in close association with. So you end up developing developing relationships and friendships, and you still have to do your job, and and you do your job impartially, um, but but you obviously are, are going to develop relationships with the people you've been working closely with. So I don't think I'd be able to identify just one is saying that, you know, this guy does a great job or of networking. Because I will say this, the, the, top, the top college coaches understand the, the importance of the media and, um, and not even from people like myself, but from much bigger media personalities. And so those are always relationships that they're actively engaged in, in cultivating. Adam, that's a great segue to talk about Northeast coaches. A big part of my audience is Boston College fans and Jim Christian. First of all, I'd like to get your thoughts on him in general and uh, just the general take on the BC basketball program. Had a bit of an upswing this year, uh, a nice run in the ACC tournament as well. Well, they did. And, and you know, when when they first hired Jim, I know, you know, I, I had expressed some thoughts on Twitter because I know BC has a very passionate alumni base. Um, and you know, 
I caught some slack on there for, for what I thought was candor and said, hey, listen, this may be the worst job in the ACC. I mean, from a from a facility standpoint, from a resource standpoint, um, you know, across the board, this is a very, very challenging job. And I remember BC, a lot of BC fans were just shocked that somebody like Tommy Amaker probably didn't have interest in the BC job. He was probably happier at Harvard. Um, and so I, I, I think with a lot of fan bases, it's, it's important that a lot of them just aren't very um, realistic sometimes about what they're, you know, how tall of a task they are. And Jim Christian inherited a, a very difficult task, just as Steve Donahue did before him. And it goes to show you, you know, how good of a job Al Skinner did Although that you know the the conference and the, and the job was was a lot different back then, but he still did an outstanding job. Um, so I, I think the the reality is that Jim Christian took over a Boston College program that that had that didn't have the same branding in the region with young players, and so that's something that the alumni and and, and local fans might might not have been totally in tune to. And so it's just, you know, the narrative was, oh, well, they can't recruit locally. They can't recruit locally. Well, you know, you've got to have um, the brand went in correlation to the amount of resources that was invested in the brand. And so I think for him to do what he's doing and have a steep uphill climb, I was just really happy for them this year because they figured out a way to do it differently, to go down into North Carolina into the thick of ACC country and get a kid who may be, who, who may be the, the, you know, the, the typical ACC powerhouses have overlooked, um, but who, you know, is still, who's going to thrive on that challenge of proving those people wrong. And so I think to develop that pipeline into North Carolina and be able to get the type of players they have, not just early on when you look at like Jerome Robinson and Kai Bowman, who have obviously, uh, become very important for them. But even this year with somebody like Jarius Hamilton. Um, so I just give them a lot of credit. I don't think anybody's ever, ever denied that he's a tremendous X's and O's coach. And I think for their ability to, to kind of figure out uh, a way to do this differently, because there, there, there was never a direct path when they got that job. And that's, that's a reality regardless of, of who may want to admit it. Um, so I, I think they've done a really admirable job, and I'm hoping that I'm hoping that the guys come back next year and see if they can uh, they can take it to the next level and get back to the tournament. Do you think Jerome Robinson would benefit more from a fourth year in college, or do you think it's time for him now is to jump to the NBA and cash in? No, I think all of that depends on on you know the the type of uh, the thing about the NBA draft is it's everybody wants to say oh he's a late first round pick well it it's it's not that easy. You know, it, it comes down to are there, you know, where you are relative to the other guys who declare for the draft. So uh, for me, if I were a second-round pick with an opportunity to come back to BC and, and get, a, uh, get a diploma uh, from a school like that, have the potential to engage that alumni network that I mentioned, especially if you're the guy who brings them back to the NCAA tournament, um, you know, I think if you're a second-round pick, that's something that, that he's got to really think long and hard about doing because, that's, you know, the power of the BC alumni network. If you're the guy who restores some of that, that pride, I think that's, that's something that could, that could pay dividends uh, for a long time. And so, again, I'm hopeful that, that he will, uh, that he'll, he'll consider coming back. But I think a lot of it is based on the feedback. I'm sure he will declare for, for the draft and, and get the feedback. He's a first-round pick. He'll probably go. Um, but if he's not, I think he's, he's probably got to think about coming back. And a lot of BC fans are excited for Jarius Hamilton. Of course, his brother Jared Hamilton is coming as well uh, as a transfer. But this is one of the highest recruits, at least ranked-wise, that BC has got. Probably going back to either the Craig Smith, Jared Dudley days. Uh, maybe Rakim Sanders as well. But uh, what can you tell us about Jarius Hamilton? BC fans are clamoring to know any information as he comes to campus next semester. So he is a, a physically gifted just specimen. I think he, you know, he kind of fancies himself as a big wing, um, where he's got the he's got the size, the the physicality, the strength, the athleticism um, to, 
to to play that position. Uh, he had an offer from Duke last spring, which which gives you a little idea of, of you know how other coaches think about him. Ultimately, um, they didn't continue to to actively recruit him throughout the, the course of the summer, um, but. He does have that physical level upside. He's also physically ready for college. He's got a college-ready body. What he needs to work on is is his his skill set, his feel for the game, ability to play within the flow. He's got enough size where he can probably be be a, a small ball four man right now, and and that until he becomes a little bit more cerebral, that that may be his best position. Um, but I, I suspect that. Uh, you know, he's going to see plenty of time on the wing as well. And, and again, physically, he's going to be ready to come right in. And he's also going to have that opportunity to play a big role here. And so there's a lot of parallels between, you know, his recruitment and what we've seen with some guys in the past. And that this is a guy who, who even had an offer from, from you know, the biggest of the big down there at Duke. And then they kind of backed off him. And so BC's really kind of selling that opportunity to, to come in, play a big role right off the bat, and show them they were wrong. And uh, um, I think that's something he's capable of doing, especially as his skill set and his feel for the game and his decision-making start to catch up with his, with his physical prowess. Would you categorize him as a instant impact? Like, do you vision him starting from, as a uh, freshman this year uh, coming up for BC? Yeah. Yes, I, I think that especially you know when you look at that BC lineup where they were at you know like the three and the four spots, um, you know I didn't see them play a ton, but I called their game against Hartford earlier in the year and and did a, a little bit of research on if they get both of the cards back and uh, you know I know Mitchell exceeded expectations this year, but if you could plug Hamilton into you know again I think he's going to be able to play the three or the four. And I think he, he's going to be uh, able to play significant minutes right away and, you know, very potentially challenge for a uh, challenge for a starting spot. I mean, if, if Mitchell was starting as a freshman this year, then uh, I expect Hamilton to be significantly farther ahead of, of where he was at a similar stage. Yeah, no question about it. They lost Teddy Hawkins as well early in the year, uh, fifth-year transfer, so that hurt in terms of uh, leadership, and open up a lot of opportunities for a guy like Mitchell. No doubt. Uh, and Adam, last couple of minutes here before I let you go. The other recruit coming in for BC, Winston Tabs. What's your thoughts on him coming in? So Winston Tabs, he's from the uh, D.C., Maryland area. He is a volume scorer, um, a guy who who takes and makes tough shots. I think he's enough to be a little uh, but he is a, a tough kid who knows how to put the ball in the basket. And he knows how to get fouled, too. His understanding of how to get to the free throw line um, is something that, that maybe not as a freshman as he's adjusting to the physicality of the ACC. But, uh, you know, he's got that instinctive savvy that as he becomes an upperclassman and a, and a veteran, I think that'll become uh, all the more important. So got to be a little bit more efficient, going to have to buy into a little less volume-driven role in terms of his scoring ability, but he can put the ball in the basket, and he, he's got that physical type of game which draws contact and, and gets him to the free-throw line for easy buckets. And then last question, BC. The fans often wonder about what do you think of the assistant coaches, Scott Spinelli and company for BC and their roles, and how are they respected throughout the country, uh, in terms, of, especially the ACC? Well, obviously, you know, Scott's got that, that – uh, Tremendous resume from from you know Maryland and and uh, Wichita State before that, and I think you know Billy Wu is as well liked as any assistant around. And um, you know Billy's a guy who who recruited the region long before he got to BC. Uh, you know whether it was at TCU or Ohio or so. I think he had relationships specifically in the prep schools before he got here, and is just um, you know. So I, I think those guys are are respected, well-liked, and um, obviously Coach Cheeks, I, th- I think, is as well. And, again, you know, everybody's a good recruiter if, they, if they've got the right brand across their chest, you know. And, and it's um, those guys' credit. They have identified guys who are under the radar, showing their ability, ability to evaluate, and then they've been able to develop those guys. And because, remember, you know, those kids from North Carolina – they were people that the rest of the schools in the ACC didn't want, 
and now they're 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 proving those guys were wrong. And that's what I always find interesting about BC basketball. I think there's a big upside. You know, the tough thing with uh, BC football recruiting is the talent is not. It's it's other parts of the country where the majority of the talent comes from. But with basketball, the New England prep schools, New England, Northeast, there's really a lot of opportunity for BC in, in this neck of the woods. And you're right, they're getting the kids from North Carolina. I think that next step would be dominating the Northeast and the uh, the New England scene. Yeah, I, I are you a BC alum? No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> listen, that, that's that's an ideal scenario. But here's the thing: that's that's also not realistic. I mean. It, it's it's not really first they have to upgrade the dorms then they have to upgrade the facility then they have to upgrade the because you go to UConn or you go to Providence and all these kids do all these kids it's not that these kids haven't been on BC's campus it's that what they see is not the same as what they're seeing at these other places and that's the feedback you consistently get from the kids from the AAU coaches and that that is not Jimmy Christian's fault um, that comes down to, to, and I know, I'm sure my, my Twitter mentions are going to go crazy with BC alums right now, but you know, that, that's why it's, it's the uphill climb that it is. Um, and they've got to, they, if they're serious about getting it back to that level where they are the preeminent brand in new England, it's not about who the coach is. It's about the, the level of resources that they put in the program first and foremost. No question about it. You're right. They played in gym. They share with the women's team, the volleyball team. They need a basketball-only facility. I think the new AD, Martin Jarmon, is talking about that and uh, in the process of fundraising. So you're right. That needs to get done because you go to 100 miles down the road, uh, UConn stores, they don't have the conference affiliation that BC does, but they have that worth uh, practice facility, and that's a very, very impressive facility. And, and Providence is building one. Yep. UMass has one. So, I mean, again, and UMass is in the Atlantic 10. They already have a practice facility. So, it's, uh, so again, I, I just think that that this is, you know, you've got it's an arms race, and and if you're not staying current in that, it doesn't matter who your coach is, because those are things that, you know, dorm rooms and facilities and chartered flights, and those are things that matter to kids and to AAU coaches and things that are part of every school's recruiting pitch. Hey, you mentioned briefly UConn. I just want to ask you one question about Kevin Alley. A, were you surprised that he was let go? And also, B, who do you think is a leading candidate to uh, replace Kevin Ollie at UConn Huskies uh, in the American Athletic Conference? Well, I was I was sorry to see him go. Um, you know, he'd always been good to me. Uh, and I, I'm, a, as we discussed, I'm a UConn alum. And, and again, this is a guy who won a national championship five years ago. So it, it just shows that, that you know, um, it, it's a what-have-you-done-for-me-lately type of uh, – type of uh, industry, um, but I, I think that you could, you know, was I surprised? No, I don't think anybody could really claim they'd be surprised. You could kind of see it coming, and, and I think that when there was, you know, when when the NCA investigation stuff started to get public in the middle of the season, and, you know, it got leaked, it got leaked from anonymous sources, um, I, I think that was that was some of the writing on the wall, and, and um, you know, so I don't think anybody was surprised, but I think certainly, you know, everybody was 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 just sorry that it, it didn't didn't work out better. Do you think uh, that the recruiting has gone down a little bit from your perspective with UConn over the last couple of years, or do you think they can are still able to pull in those top fifty kids they used to doing as well a couple of years ago? You know, I think the bigger issue was the amount of people who left the program last, last spring uh, by transfers. Yeah. I mean, you look at the guys who, who transferred out, that their margin for error was just so small. And without Tariq Gilbert and Jalen Adams, you still have a pair of top 50 recruits there in your backcourt. But, you know, Al Tariq Gilbert's got a, got a shoulder that just keeps kind of breaking down on him. And... With those transfers, there just wasn't the depth in place to be able to absorb a loss of, of one of your key guys. So I think if you know, if those three guys don't transfer last year and and um, you know they're, they're able to develop some continuity, it's, it's a much different story. So I, I don't think that even this year. I mean, they had a commitment from a top 100 guy from California and James Akinju. Um, they were right there with Jalen Carey before he committed to Syracuse. And, and in fact, there's, you know, 
you could make an argument that that had UConn prioritized Carey over Akinju, that they would have gotten him. Um, so I don't think recruiting. I think it was more about retention than it was recruiting, at least in the last in the last year or so, um, because it it's still. Again, they won a national championship five years ago. They've got a brand-new practice facility. It's still a brand that, that resonates um, with, with local kids, despite being in the American when Boston College is in the ACC. And do you, know any, do you think, who do you suspect, any candidates that you might know about to replace them, whether it's a Hurley, a URI, anyone else? Yeah, I mean, that's the, that's the name that you see most frequently. Um, you know, and obviously what, what Coach Hurley's been able to do at Rhode Island has been extraordinary. He'd obviously be a tremendous candidate in a number of places. Um, I think the fact that Coach Moore, who I you know mentioned earlier as a former UConn assistant, the guy who was responsible for me becoming a manager, with him being on Coach Hurley's staff now, it provides that that bridge to the the Coach Calhoun era because you know otherwise I'm not sure there's anybody else in the in Coach Calhoun's family who's a, who's a candidate right now because you know Steve Peichel signed that extension at Rutgers. Uh, in the winter, and I want to say his his buyout's five million dollars or something like that. So for UConn to to you know still be negotiating exactly what they're going to owe Kevin Ollie, they probably don't have the money to pay another five million dollar buyout and then come up with the salary that would motivate uh, somebody like Steve Peichel to to want to leave Rutgers. So I don't know that there are any in in you know candidates in the family because of that and so um you know and as i said dan early is going to be an outstanding candidate for any job in the country and certainly in the northeast after what he's he's built uh at the university of rhode island final question looking ahead to the sweet 16 here adam uh what four teams do you think we'll see uh next weekend talking about advancing from each of the regions well um you know, don't don't trust my bracket. That's that's what we've learned this week. But um, <laughs> you know, I think Kentucky certainly has a a, uh, a pretty a pretty clean path. Um, what I think is interesting is in the East, where where Villanova is playing probably the best basketball of anyone in the country. They probably have the hardest field, having to go through West Virginia and then either Texas Tech or Purdue. But you know, I, I think it's hard to bet against Villanova right now. I think Kentucky's got a uh, got a really good path um the west i think is totally up for grabs um i actually think uh texas a&m still got a chance here uh you know with their size if their guards can can provide any sort of stability i think their front line is is you know give them a chance and then um you know and then i i think uh whether it's kansas or duke i i would i would probably lean more towards duke but it's, it's hard to bet against kansas's guards right now well, it's going to be interesting. We have, of course, have a regional up in Boston, the Eastern Regional. So, it should be very exciting in the next couple of weeks here. And I know you coverage game, you cover games for University of Hartford in the America East. Your thoughts on UMBC beating uh, Kentucky, the 16 seed off a of one seed? I, mean, I remember I saw you a couple of weeks ago at the Hartford game against UMBC. I never would have thought this team uh, would have defeated Virginia. Uh, just lastly, your thoughts on that monumental upset. And no matter what, I think that's what everyone will be talking about from this tournament and years down the road, even more so than who wins the championship in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, they they caught fire at the right time. I mean, it was, uh, you know, frankly, I, I think going and winning on the road at Vermont, a team that has been as dominant relative to their league as anyone in the country over the course of the last two seasons, um, that was a monumental win on its own. And, and people almost now at least nationally, forgetting about that Jarris Lyles three uh, because they went on and, and beat Virginia in, in, in the way they did. Um, but, you know, I'll say this. I think Coach Odom, another guy who does a fantastic job, I love the way they play with that drive and kick game. I think it's a brand of basketball that's, that's entertaining uh, for fans to watch. Um, you know, so it's, it's I, I think, with his pedigree, uh, you know, being the son of a coach and the style of play he has and, and the success he's had in March, um, you know, I think he's going to be a, a very popular name, um, you know, basically whenever he wants to be. Uh, he, he's built quite a quite a resume. His temperament on the sidelines is, is really, you know, he's just so calm, cool, and collective. He was, 
he was a very kind of fun, interesting guy to study over there on the sideline. And, you know, as you were talking, I noticed, too, you have to give credit to Tony Bennett, Virginia, the way he handled that loss. I mean, it could have gone a different way with his attitude, but he was positive, he was reflective, and a lot of class, I thought, in the postgame. Yeah, he was a total gentleman, and I think I, I don't I don't uh, know him especially well personally. I uh, know plenty of guys on his staff, and, and that's consistent with – I haven't heard anybody be surprised by that. I certainly wasn't because that, that is – you know what you expect from him, and and I think that again they were they were the top overall seed, but I think you have to remember that that one um, they had a big injury that they so they were missing a key player, and two from talent alone they had no business being the top overall seed. So he's he's almost a victim of his own success, and they they you know that that overall that number one seed was a reflection of just how much they've overachieved this year as in years past. Um, and so he is a, you know, by all accounts, one of the best coaches in the country. And it, and it didn't come as a surprise to me or, or certainly any other people who know him better than I do that he handled it with, with such class and, uh, and dignity. Well, Adam, I can't thank you enough for the time. I know we went a little long, but a lot of great content from you. We covered a lot of topics. Thank you so much for coming on the Lights, Camera, Sports podcast uh, presented by Chestnut Absolutely. Hill Technologies. Thanks so much for having me. Chestnut Hill Technologies is a leading technology integration and cybersecurity consulting firm based in the Boston area and owned by BC alum. CHT provides world-class strategy and consulting to Fortune 500 and mid-cap firms throughout New England and nationally, including State Street Bank, Amaj Pharma, and Intel Corporation. Check them out at chestnuthilltechnologies.com. That's chestnuthilltechnologies.com. At Stone Love and Pizza, their mission is simple, to offer the most creative selection of hand-tossed, all-natural pizza in the Neapolitan tradition. Their pizzas are cooked in a stone-fired brick oven directly on the stone to lock in the flavor. Stone Love and Pizza uses all-natural products. In other words, their dough, sauce, and cheese contain no additives, preservatives, or weird chemicals of any kind. Come visit one of Stone Lovin's three locations, including the newest location at 1649 Beacon Street in Newton. Go Eagles! Well, thanks so much to Adam Fickelstein for joining us here on the Lights, Camera, Sports Podcast. It truly is March Madness. like to remind everybody, if you want to be a part of the BC Football Gridiron Club, just go to bcfootballgridiron.com to sign up and get more details. As always, like to remind everybody, if you'd like to advertise on our podcast, just email Lights Camera Sports ADS at gmail.com. That's Lights Camera Sports Ads at gmail.com and join Chestnut Hill Technologies and Stone Love and Pizza. We'll see you again next week, everybody. This is Mike Galtieri signing off.